Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 10 At the end of a month, my services being no longer required at Tanner's, I was sent over the bayou again to my master, whom I found engaged in building the cotton press. This was situated at some distance from the great house, in a rather retired place. I commenced working once more in company with Tibeats, being entirely alone with him most part of the time. I remembered the words of Chapin, his precautions, his advice to beware, lest in some unsuspecting moment he might injure me. They were always in my mind, so that I lived in a most uneasy state of apprehension and fear. One eye was on my work, the other on my master. I determined to give him no cause of offense, to work still more diligently, if possible, than I had done, to bear whatever abuse he might heap upon me, save bodily injury, humbly and patiently, hoping thereby to soften in some degree his manner towards me, until the blessed time might come when I should be delivered from his clutches. The third morning after my return, Chapin left the plantation for Cheneyville to be absent until night. Tibeats, on that morning, was attacked with one of those periodical fits of spleen and ill-humor to which he was frequently subject, rendering him still more disagreeable and venomous than usual. It was about nine o'clock in the forenoon when I was busily employed with the jack plane on one of the sweeps. Tibeats was standing by the workbench, fitting a handle into the chisel, with which he'd been engaged previously in cutting the thread of the screw. "'You're not planing that down enough,' he said. "'It's just even with the line,' I replied. "'You're a damn liar,' he exclaimed passionately. "'Oh, well, master,' I said mildly. "'I will plane it down more if you say so,' at the same time proceeding to do as I supposed he desired. Before one shaving had been removed, however, he cried out, saying, "'I had now planed it too deep. It was too small. I had spoiled the sweep entirely.' Then followed curses and imprecations. I had endeavored to do exactly as he directed, but nothing would satisfy the unreasonable man. In silence and in dread, I stood by the sweep, holding the jack plane in my hand, not knowing what to do, and not daring to be idle. His anger grew more and more violent, until finally, with an oath, such a bitter, frightful oath as only Tibeats could utter, he seized a hatchet from the workbench and darted towards me, swearing he would cut my head open. It was a moment of life or death. The sharp, bright blade of the hatchet glittered in the sun. In another instant, it would be buried in my brain, and yet, in that instant, so quick will a man's thoughts come to him in such a fearful strait, I reasoned with myself. If I stood still, my doom was certain. If I fled, ten chances to one the hatchet, flying from his hand, with a too deadly and unerring aim, would strike me in the back. There was but one course to take. Springing towards him with all my power, and meeting him full halfway before he could bring down the blow, with one hand I caught his uplifted arm, with the other seized him by the throat. We stood looking each other in the eyes. In his, I could see murder. I felt as if I had a serpent by the neck, watching the slightest relaxation of my grip to coil itself around my body, crushing and stinging it to death. I thought to scream aloud, trusting that some ear might catch the sound. But Chapin was away. The hands were in the field. There was no living soul in sight or hearing. 
the good genius, which thus far through life has saved me from the hands of violence, at that moment suggested a lucky thought. With a vigorous and sudden kick that brought him on one knee with a groan, I released my hold upon his throat, snatched the hatchet, and cast it beyond reach. Frantic with rage, maddened beyond control, he seized a white oak stick, five feet long, perhaps, and as large in circumference as his hand could rasp, which was lying on the ground. Again he rushed towards me, and again I met him, seized him about the waist, and being the stronger of the two, bore him to the earth. While in that position I obtained possession of the stick, and rising, cast it from me also. He likewise arose and ran for the broad axe on the workbench. Fortunately, there was a heavy plank lying upon its broad blade in such a manner that he could not extricate it before I had sprung upon his back, pressing him down closely and heavily on the plank so that the axe was held more firmly to its place. I endeavored, but in vain, to break his grasp upon the handle. In that position, he remained some minutes. There have been hours in my unhappy life, many of them, when the contemplation of death as the end of earthly sorrow of the grave as a resting place for the tired and worn-out body, had been pleasant to dwell upon. But such contemplations vanish in the hour of peril. No man in his full strength can stand undismayed in the presence of the king of terrors. Life is dear to every living thing. The worm that crawls upon the ground will struggle for it. At that moment it was dear to me, enslaved and treated as I was. Not able to unloose his hand, once more I seized him by the throat, and this time with a vice-like grip that soon relaxed his hold. He became pliant and unstrung. His face, that had been white with passion, was now black from suffocation. Those small serpent eyes that spat such venom were now full of horror. Two great white orbs starting from their sockets. There was a lurking devil in my heart that prompted me to kill the human bloodhound on the spot, to retain the grip on his accursed throat till the breath of life was gone. I dared not murder him, and I dared not let him live. If I killed him, my life must pay the forfeit. If he lived, my life only would satisfy his vengeance. A voice within whispered me to fly to be a wanderer among the swamps, a fugitive and a vagabond on the face of the earth, was preferable to the life that I was leading. My resolution was soon formed, and swinging him from the workbench to the ground, I leaped a fence nearby and hurried across the plantation, passing the slaves at work in the cotton field. At the end of a quarter of a mile I reached the wood pasture, and it was a short time indeed that I had been running it. Climbing onto a high fence, I could see the cotton press, the great house, and the space between. It was a conspicuous position, from whence the whole plantation was in view. I saw Tabitz cross the field towards the house and enter it. Then he came out, carrying his saddle, and presently mounted his horse and galloped away. I was desolate, but thankful. Thankful that my life was spared, desolate and discouraged with the prospect before me. What would become of me? Who would befriend me? Whither should I fly? O oh God, thou who gavest me life and implanted in my bosom the love of life, who filled it with emotions such as other men, thy creatures have, do not forsake me 
Have pity on the poor slave. Let me not perish. If thou dost not protect me, I am lost. Lost! Such supplications, silently and unuttered, ascended from my inmost heart to heaven. But there was no answering voice, no sweet low tone coming down from on high, whispering to my soul, It is I, be not afraid. I was the forsaken of God, it seemed, the despised and hated of men. In about three-fourths of an hour, several of the slaves shouted and made signs for me to run. Presently, looking up the bayou, I saw Tibetes and two others on horseback, coming at a fast gait, followed by a troop of dogs. There were as many as eight or ten. Distant as I was, I knew them. They belonged on the adjoining plantation. The dogs, used on Bayou Boeuf for hunting slaves, are a kind of bloodhound, but a far more savage breed than is found in the northern states. They will attack a negro at their master's bidding and cling to him as the common bulldog will cling to a four-footed animal. Frequently, their loud bay is heard in the swamps, and then there is speculation as to what point the runaway will be overhauled. The same as a New York hunter stops to listen to the hounds coursing along the hillsides and suggests to his companion that the fox will be taken at such a place. I never knew a slave escaping with his life from Bayou Boeuf. One reason is they're not allowed to learn the art of swimming and are incapable of crossing the most considerable stream. In their flight, they can go in no direction but a little way without coming to a bayou when the inevitable alternative is presented, of being drowned or overtaken by the dogs. In youth, I'd practiced in the clear streams that flow through my native district until I'd become an expert swimmer and felt at home in the watery element. I stood upon the fence until the dogs had reached the cotton press. In an instant more, their long, savage yells announced they were on my track. Leaping down from my position, I ran towards the swamp. Fear gave me strength, and I exerted it to the utmost. Every few moments I could hear the yelpings of the dogs. They were gaining on me. Every howl was nearer and nearer. Each moment I expected they would spring upon my back, expected to feel their long teeth sinking into my flesh. There were so many of them, I knew they would tear me to pieces, that they would worry me at once to death. I gasped for breath, gasped forth a half-uttered, choking prayer to the Almighty to save me, to give me strength to reach some wide, deep bayou where I could throw them off the track or sink into the waters. Presently, I reached a thick palmetto bottom. As I fled through them, they made a loud rustling noise, not loud enough, however, to drown the voices of the dogs. Continuing my course due south, as nearly as I can judge, I came at length to water just over shoe. The hounds at that moment could not have been five rods behind me. I could hear them crashing and plunging through the palmettos, their loud, eager yells making the whole swamp clamorous with the sound. Hope revived a little as I reached the water. If it were only deeper, they might lose the scent, and thus disconcerted, afford me the opportunity of evading them. Luckily, it grew deeper the farther I proceeded, now over my ankles, now halfway to my knees, now sinking a moment to my waist, and then emerging presently into more shallow places. The dogs had not gained upon me since I struck the water. Evidently, they were confused. 
Now their savage intonations grew more and more distant, assuring me that I was leaving them. Finally, I stopped to listen, but the long howl came booming on the air again, telling me I was not yet safe. From bog to bog, where I had stepped, they could still keep upon the track, though impeded by the water. At length, to my great joy, I came to a wide bayou, and plunging in, had soon stemmed its sluggish current to the other side. There, certainly, the dogs would be confounded. The current, carrying down the stream, all traces of that slight mysterious scent which enables the quick-smelling hound to follow in the track of the fugitive. After crossing this bayou, the water became so deep I couldn't run. I was now in what I afterwards learned was the great Pacudri Swamp. It was filled with immense trees, the sycamore, the gum, the cottonwood, and cypress, and extends, I'm informed, to the shore of the Calcasu River. For thirty or forty miles it's without inhabitants, save wild beasts, the bear, the wildcat, the tiger, and great slimy reptiles that are crawling through it everywhere. Long before I reached the bayou, in fact from the time I struck the water until I emerged from the swamp on my return, these reptiles surrounded me. I saw hundreds of moccasin snakes, every log and bog, every trunk of a fallen tree over which I was compelled to step or climb, was alive with them. They crawled away at my approach, but sometimes in my haste I almost placed my hand or foot upon them. They're poisonous serpents, their bite more fatal than the rattlesnakes. Besides, I had lost one shoe, the sole having come entirely off, leaving the upper only dangling to my ankle. I saw also many alligators, great and small, lying in the water or on pieces of floodwood. The noise I made usually startled them when they moved off and plunged into the deepest places. Sometimes, however, I would come directly upon a monster before observing it. In such cases, I would start back, run a short way round, and in that manner shun them. Straightforward, they will run a short distance rapidly, but do not possess the power of turning. In a crooked race, there's no difficulty in evading them. About two o'clock in the afternoon, I heard the last of the hounds. Probably they did not cross the bayou. Wet and weary, but relieved from the sense of instant peril, I continued on, more cautious and afraid, however, of the snakes and alligators than I'd been in the earlier portion of my flight. Now, before stepping into a muddy pool, I would strike the water with a stick. If the waters moved, I'd go around it. If not, would venture through. At length, the sun went down, and gradually night's trailing mantle shrouded the great swamp in darkness. Still, I staggered on, fearing every instant I should feel the dreadful sting of the moccasin, or be crushed within the jaws of some disturbed alligator. The dread of them now almost equaled the fear of the pursuing hounds. The moon arose after a time, its mild light creeping through the overspreading branches loaded with long, pendant moss. I kept traveling forwards until after midnight, hoping all the while that I would soon emerge into some less desolate and dangerous region. But the water grew deeper, and the walking more difficult than ever. I perceived it would be impossible to proceed much farther, and knew not, moreover, what hands I might fall into should I succeed in reaching a human habitation. Not provided with a pass, any white man would be at liberty to arrest me and place me in prison until such time as my master should prove property 
pay charges, and take me away. I was an estray, and if so unfortunate as to meet a law-abiding citizen of Louisiana, he would deem it his duty to his neighbor, perhaps, to put me forthwith in the pound. Really, it was difficult to determine which I had most reason to fear, dogs, alligators, or men. After midnight, however, I came to a halt. Imagination cannot picture the dreariness of the scene. The swamp was resonant with the quacking of innumerable ducks. Since the foundation of the earth, in all probability, a human footstep had never before so far penetrated the recesses of the swamp. It was not silent now, silent to a degree that rendered it oppressive, as it was when the sun was shining in the heavens. My midnight intrusion had awakened the feathered tribes, which seemed to throng the morass in hundreds of thousands, and their garrulous throats poured forth such multitudinous sounds, there was such a fluttering of wings, such sullen plunges in the water all round me, that I was affrighted and appalled. All the fowls of the air and all the creeping things of the earth appeared to have assembled together in that particular place for the purpose of filling it with clamor and confusion. Not by human dwellings, not in crowded cities alone are the sights and sounds of life. The wildest places of the earth are full of them. Even in the heart of that dismal swamp, God had provided a refuge and a dwelling place for millions of living things. The moon had now risen above the trees when I resolved upon a new project. Thus far, I had endeavored to travel as nearly south as possible. Turning about, I proceeded in a northwest direction, my object being to strike the pine woods in the vicinity of Master Ford's. Once within the shadow of his protection, I felt I would be comparatively safe. My clothes were in tatters, my hands, face, and body covered with scratches, received from the sharp knots of fallen trees, and in climbing over piles of brush and floodwood. My bare foot was full of thorns, I was besmeared with muck and mud, and the green slime that had collected on the surface of the dead water, in which I'd been immersed to the neck many times during the day and night. Hour after hour, and tiresome indeed had they become, I continued to plod along on my northwest course. The water began to grow less deep, and the ground more firm under my feet. At last I reached the Pacudri, the same wide bayou I had swum while outward bound. I swam in again, and shortly after thought I heard a cock crow, but the sound was faint, and it might have been a mockery of the ear. The water receded from my advancing footsteps. Now I had left the bogs behind me. Now I was on dry land that gradually ascended to the plain, and I knew I was somewhere in the great pine woods. Just at daybreak I came to an opening, a sort of small plantation, but one I'd never seen before. In the edge of the woods I came upon two men, a slave and his young master, engaged in catching wild hogs. The white man I knew would demand my pass, and not able to give him one, would take me into possession. I was too wearied to run again, and too desperate to be taken, and therefore adopted a ruse that proved entirely successful. Assuming a fierce expression, I walked directly towards him, looking him steadily in the face. As I approached, he moved backwards with an air of alarm. It was plain he was much affrighted. 
that he looked upon me as some infernal goblin just arisen from the bowels of the swamp. Where does William Ford live? I demanded, in no gentle tone. He lives seven miles from here, was the reply. Which is the way to his place? I again demanded, trying to look more fiercely than ever. Do you see those pine trees yonder? He asked, pointing to two, a mile distant, that rose far above the fellows, like a couple of tall sentinels, overlooking the broad expanse of forest. I see them, was the answer. At the feet of those pine trees, he continued, runs the Texas road. Turn to the left, and it'll lead you to Ford's. Without further parley, I hastened forward, happy as he was, no doubt, to place the widest possible distance between us. Striking the Texas road, I turned to the left hand, as directed, and soon passed a great fire, where a pile of logs were burning. I went to it, thinking I'd dry my clothes, but the gray light of the morning was fast breaking away. Some passing white man might observe me. Besides, the heat overpowered me with the desire of sleep. So lingering no longer, I continued my travels, and finally, about eight o'clock, reached the house of Master Ford. The slaves were all absent from the quarters at their work. Stepping onto the piazza, I knocked at the door, which was soon opened by Mistress Ford. My appearance was so changed, I was in such a woebegone and forlorn condition, she didn't know me. Inquiring if Master Ford was at home, that good man made his appearance before the question could be answered. I told him of my flight and all the particulars connected with it. He listened attentively and when I'd concluded, spoke to me kindly and sympathetically, and taking me to the kitchen, called John and ordered him to prepare me food. I had tasted nothing since daylight the previous morning. When John had set the meal before me, the madam came out with a bowl of milk and many little delicious dainties, such as rarely please the palate of a slave. I was hungry and I was weary, but neither food nor rest afforded half the pleasure as did the blessed voices speaking kindness and consolation. It was the oil and the wine which the good Samaritan in the great pine woods was ready to pour into the wounded spirit of the slave, who came to him, stripped of his raiment and half dead. They left me in the cabin that I might rest. Blessed be sleep. It visiteth all alike, descending as the dews of heaven on the bond and free. Soon it nestled to my bosom, driving away the troubles that oppressed it, and bearing me to that shadowy region where I saw again the faces and listened to the voices of my children, who, alas, for aught I knew in my waking hours, had fallen into the arms of that other sleep from which they never would arouse.